Hello and welcome to Two Bald Men and Friend, the show where we talk about issues and ideas using pop culture as the springboard. I'm your host, Joe, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hi. And today we are joined by our friend, James. Hi, how are you, Joe? Today we're talking about every brilliant thing and mental health. So, spoiler alert for every brilliant thing. Sit back, relax, or if you're driving, please sit upright and continue to drive vigilantly. James, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's weird calling you James. This is new and scary for me. Yeah, you're grown up now. That yeah. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> is that the part that's scary? I thought it was just the name. <laughs> no, now there's taxes and insurance and making my own doctor's appointment. My biggest thing is cooking for myself. Mm. Like all the things you said are also scary, <laughs> but just planning far enough ahead to defrost chicken, exhausting. I saw you have an Instant Pot. I do. Sometime you should uh, ditch this podcast and we can do an Instant Pot podcast. There's, yeah, you're right. I can only host one podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I can make everything in the Instant Pot. So uh, yeah. if we run out of topics, just ask. How do you do that um, London broil that you do in the pot in the Instant I, Pot? I think we should just do that instead. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Um, this, could, this could be a the Instant Podcast. Uh, hello and welcome oh, we already to have Instant yeah. pot, nice. Podcast and friend. Which one of us is the friend? It seems like you're now the host. <laughs> could be. Yeah. <laughs> so if I were going to make something in an Instant Pot, guys, what kind of meat would you prefer I make? <laughs> oh uh, gosh, there's so many. <laughs> there are lamb. Lamb. I've Ooh. actually done a lamb stew. It was delicious, although it was a little disgusting to prepare. Oh. Yeah. Did um? Do you guys watch uh, cooking shows like Chopped or Iron Chef? Things in I that used vein? to love the original Japanese Iron mm. Chef. Uh, the American one, I don't think it's as good, but the original Iron Chef, yeah, it's where I fell in love with Morimoto. Ah. As most of us did. <laughs> um, I don't remember which show it was on, but they. I think it was chopped, because I think this was the, the secret ingredient or whatever. Or is that Iron Chef? Anyway, uh, they had to use a lamb's head. So they everyone got a lamb's head. And like some of them were like, oh, yeah, like obviously, you know, I'm a chef, so I know what to do. But I don't like using lamb's head. And this other guy just took out a cleave and like <laughs> whacked it in half with like the might of Hercules. Like it was, it was absolutely insane. What well, frustrates me about... I don't know if it's those shows, but whenever I watch videos of like recipes and stuff, all of the ingredients are already measured out, and that's like <laughs> my most that's the most frustrating part for cooking for me. So like they make it look so easy, just like oh now you put in the salt, now you put in the onions, and I'm like but you didn't cut them, and it's <laughs> not that I need that instruction, but I want them to struggle as much as I do <laughs> when I prepare their video recipe. When I was in France, I actually had a dish that was based on the meat of a calf's head. Ooh. Yeah, they didn't tell us, which is good, because I ate it and went, oh, my God, this is delicious. I love this. What is it? Well, it's the meat of a... <laughs> oh, that's frustrating. Uh, for, for those who don't know, James was Joe's and my director in college. Um, we, we called him Professor Phillips. And that's why it's so difficult to call him James now. Uh, so I still call him Phillips. I got rid of the professor. Is that adult? Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay. I have a theater professor from when I was in college, and he's Lockhart or Trav. Okay, so so I'll call you Phillips, Lockhart, or Trav. That'll work. Okay. Now, the, now, on the other hand, I have another theater professor from college, and he is still to this day Dr. Lang. Mm. So I don't know. 
So you're not an adult yet. Uh, no, you can ask my wife. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, great. So, um, James, could you give us a one to two sentence synopsis of every brilliant thing? Uh, it's the story of a boy who at seven, in response to his mother attempting suicide, starts to create a list of everything brilliant about the world in order to help his mother. But as we see him go through his life, the list becomes more about dealing with his own mental illness and depression and becomes a way that keeps him from doing the same thing that his mother did. And for those who are wondering, it is a funny show. <laughs> it is a very funny show. It is very hard for me to describe it in a way that is as funny as it is. Yeah, it was much uh, more humorous than I anticipated. I th- like I thought there was going to be like levity in it, but I was like, oh, he's doing like bits and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like comedic relief. Mm-hmm. It's just full-on comedy and full-on drama or mm-hmm. tragedy. Also, I'll just point out, uh, it, the the writer is British, so when he says every brilliant thing, he means, like, cool, I guess. <laughs> That's a loose translation. That's not a... I didn't know you, speak, you spoke No, yeah, I, speak, I, sp- I took a couple years of it in high school, so I don't know everything, but some of it stuck. I'm wondering about the person at home right now going, oh, thank God, because I didn't know what the hell brilliant meant. <laughs> Now I get it. That show sounds good. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons we're reviewing this play is because last week was Suicide Prevention Week. Um, but also, James and I have been working on a production of this. By the time this episode airs, the production is over. So sorry. But James is the one man for the one man show, and I helped direct him. What a role reversal. I was yeah. so stressed. <laughs> That classic uh, student becomes the master. Is that does that track? James, have you ever referred to me as master? No, I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't think. Yeah. Of, All right, I can't then. think of a time when I refer to you as master. <laughs> um, but for those who don't get a chance to see this production because you're just hearing about it now, there is an HBO um, special in the documentary section where the original actor performs it. So feel free to go listen to that before we start our spoiler rants. Happening now. (gasps) So uh, (laughs) I guess that's our cue to uh, rate it. I think so. Yeah. Um, So as a fan, I'm going to give it a five. Originally, I was like, oh, I'll give it like a four. And then I was trying to think of why a four, and I really couldn't think of a reason. So that kind of told me... It deserves five stars because I think the storytelling is so like tight and set up very well that, you know, it's just a really, really enjoyable and honest show. Well, I pretty much have to give it a five because I'm the one who decided that I wanted to do it because I, uh, I can't remember if I saw it or read it first, but within about the first 10 minutes, I knew that I wanted to be a part of a production of it. Um, both because of the honesty, like you said, Joe, and then uh, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but how the story is told and the way the audience is brought into the story so that even though it is a one-man show, it's really a one-man show plus 62 audience members. 
Yeah, I, I'm definitely a big fan of this. Um, I also give it five stars. And what got my attention the most was the fact that it's such a tragic topic and they so um, intelligently weaved in that comedy. You could tell that there were certain parts where the, I guess the sadness was going on to a point where like, oh, this is going on for too long. And right as I almost started feeling that, they pushed in like a really funny moment, interaction with an audience or a fun one-liner that like brought us all back. And it's just, it's smart. Mm -hmm. It's smart how it does that. Uh, do, do any of us lower it at all when we think of it in a critic's eye? No. Um, <laughs> pretty pretty much for the same reasons that we've all mentioned. Critically, I would keep it at a five. And I think it's a uh, a topic that needs to be brought up way more often than it is. And this is a great conversation starter. Like It's a great way to open the door for people who don't know how to talk about it mm -hmm. or don't think that it's okay to talk about. Yeah, there's the moment... Um, it's a little more than halfway through when he says that what he's really worried about is that he's going to feel as low as his mom and he might do the same thing, not just in a sort of abstract way, but then he goes on to clarify that, you know, as much as what my mom did angered me and I didn't understand it, I also get it. I understand why somebody would want to commit suicide. Uh, and that fear is in his head. And to go to your point, Alex, I think many, many more of us have had that moment than are comfortable talking about it. Yeah. Um, George Watsky, in one of his song lyrics, I actually forget what song, he mentioned something along the lines of, like, I've never understood how or why someone would be willing to attempt to take their life until the day that I could. And it sounds mm -hmm. so simplistic until, like, you may or may not, like, experience it as well or you see it in the world of, oh, like, it is possible. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people um, can't imagine why because we don't talk about it. Like, obviously, you know, um, it is like maybe like an outsider looking in is like, there's the classic, oh, they seem so happy, I don't understand why they would want to do that. But I also, I think that's because we don't talk about, there are issues that you don't see, and uh, mental health is just as important as physical health, and we just really don't, you know, bring this up nearly enough. Right. Um, in terms of the content itself, the media that we're reviewing, um, one of my favorite parts is that audience interaction. Um, as people come in, the one man, the performer, should be interacting with the audience and sort of making connections and asking them to read certain lines from the list. So, like, there's a, a million things in the list, and there are certain ones that are part of the production, and it's just, okay, when I say this number, could you read this line? That is actually secretly also the opportunity to start picking out certain characters that are going to play a bigger role throughout the production. So you sort of see, like, who 
is more outspoken when you give them the ticket and like who is more reserved and sort of determine, uh, okay, this person could be a good vet for this scene. This person could be a good father for this scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the uh, HBO documentary, whoever plays his dad is like phenomenal. He's actually like, this is my time to shine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I was talking with my wife and my sister-in-law who are both at the show last night, uh, one of the things that's kind of magical about this show is that that list stuff just works. You know, I hand out 62 different list entries and ask people to read them, and there's no rehearsal, and I don't get a check to see how willing are you, how, you know, how strong is your voice. I don't get any rehearsal with anyone in the audience, and it just works. And that's kind of magic mm-hmm. that, that, you know, everybody in the audience pretty quickly buys into I'm in the show too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and there are uh, some footnotes for when you pick Mrs. Patterson, who plays the role of a guidance counselor helping this seven-year-old boy understand or at least get to vent about the feelings he's experiencing from his mother's attempt. And Mrs. Patterson, the audience member, has to take off their shoe, take off their sock, and put the sock on their hand and use it as a puppet. And there's a footnote that said, never has anyone refused. <laughs> so huh. there's really, so it's like, I don't even know what to do if they, if they refuse, so good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a nightmare. Uh, yeah. You know, we, you and I, uh, Alex, we've had our issues with who's going to be Mrs. Patterson because apparently in September, women basically don't ever wear socks. Yeah. Um, on Saturday, which was our second production, every time we looked at each other, um, it would be because a woman came in and we both checked their feet. Like We were just like, hmm? hmm? And then we would look at each other and we're like, is this a new thing? Like, are we... <laughs> yeah, so we're suddenly much more interested in feet than we used to be. Um, I want to brag a little bit because I did some recon. Um yesterday's, no, two nights productions ago, not a single woman wore socks. And we were like, I guess tonight it's going to be Mr. Patterson because we don't know what to do. And finally, Becca comes in and she's wearing boots that are hiding socks. But I didn't know whether or not they were hiding socks. So I had to like go in, do some recon and just be like, hey, um, what color are your socks? And she was like, white. And I was like, cool. And then I left. (laughs) And she, after the show, was like, you know, I know you're so weird, Alex, that when you asked me what color my socks were, I didn't even think twice. (laughs) And I should have known. (laughs) All your years of being a weirdo were adding up for this one moment. And I am bragging. (laughs) Uh, James, would you be interested in talking about what it's like to perform the show, if it's any different, or how different is it to getting to watch the show on HBO? Oh, yeah, it's terrifying. (laughs) Um, You know, some things that I have learned in it, going in, obviously, you know, I'm by myself, I've got to learn all these lines, there's nobody there to help me, That, that kind of stuff I all knew. But the way as you were talking about, that I interact with the audience beforehand and am communicating with them and communicating with you and checking with box office to see when we're going to be able to start and all of that stuff to kind of stay on track. 
it's really hard to begin this show. This is the first show, really, where I've been in a place where I haven't had that warm-up time immediately prior to stepping on stage. Uh, I don't necessarily need a lot of that, but even at places, that kind of two minutes of, okay, in two minutes, the lights will go down, I'll go out, I'll start. That's a, a valuable thing for me, so it, it has been difficult figuring out how do I start? How do I get from, hey, can you read the, this number, to now I've got to tell a story on my own for the next 65 minutes? I could understand why that'd be stressful. That's uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, my experience, which has been the same anytime I directed anything, is I hate the lack of control uh, once the play starts. Like, it's like, okay, now I'm just watching. And now I'm like, all right, uh, okay, even, yeah, this. Oh, God, he has to put on his glasses. Can we stall that long? It's like, <laughs> like, there's nothing I can do. It doesn't matter if anything goes wrong or as everything goes right. I'm just another audience member at that point. And I hate it. <laughs> you see, the thing I love most about the show is all the improv stuff, all the stuff that I don't know what is going to happen. That's the part that, that I'm most drawn to. Uh, I have a background as... A, an improv performer from years ago. And so that part of, okay, I gotta wait for the glasses, I gotta, all that never bothers me. I can handle what the audience comes up with, what the audience does. And most of the time they do things that are really interesting and make the show more interesting. Certainly that was true last night. Um, in little ways, it's not, mm -hmm. you know, you're not expecting big diversions from what's going on, but. Uh, as simple as uh, how somebody stands compared to, to how they, the audience members stood the night before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the HBO documentary, there's uh, <clears throat> when he's calling out the numbers, one of the brilliant things is riding your bike downhill or something along those lines. And the guy goes, riding your bike downhill. <laughs> and the performer goes, oh my gosh, you made it sound like you were going downhill. You go on the list. <laughs> and that's, uh, yeah, part of the flexibility of only picking certain numbers for the list is you can add as much as you want mm -hmm. in the middle of the performance. <laughs> um, I found that every single time I read through the play... Every single time I listened to the play, every single time I watched the play, I would laugh and I would tear up. I never got tired of it. And something that I've mentioned to people is, like, the script does all the heavy lifting. Uh, at a certain point, the performer obviously needs to um, be a good actor, but... The, the words themselves are already such high quality that it's, like, difficult to mess up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's two real moments that I've noticed. One is very early in the play and one towards the end of the play. At one point, I take a coat and I lay a coat across my arms and say it's a dog that's about to be uh, euthanized. And I'm seven at this point. And that gets an audible audience response at that moment. And then at the end of the show, uh, my wife has left, and I say that she wrote a note, and this note is really touching. Uh, I love you. 
and when you're ready let's try again and then I've got the line but I didn't find the note for seven years and there's been an audible gasp in the audience at that moment uh, every time yeah my hair stands up at that mm -hmm. line every time even if I just read that line in isolation I'd be like oh yeah <laughs> um, I think that's one of the most emotional lines, the seven years one. I didn't find the mm -hmm. note. And then one of the other emotional parts for me is when uh, the performer asks for the submission 826,978 and no one responds because no one has that number. That's where the list stops. And that's like where his life goes downhill for a little while. And I'm like... <sighs> It's such it's such good silence on mm -hmm. stage where people are like starting to look around like did one of us mess up like did one of us like leave it on the floor, and then like as he repeats it like you start coming to the realization that like the list is over like this is it. Yeah, you know what what one of the things I think is really well written in the show is the narrator isn't his mom. And mm -hmm. the way his mental illness manifests, it turns out that it's not at all like his mother's mental illness. And we hear about his father, but his father um, isn't talked about a lot in terms of mental illness. And really, the comparison isn't ever directly made. But the son ends up being like the father, and the father isolates himself and listens to records and kind of just withdraws from life and that's what the son does and so we you know we never see that moment of the son depressed so he attempts suicide uh, we see the son becomes gradually withdrawn from everything and you start to get it all the way back in college at least he talks about I didn't go to class, I didn't socialize, I just listened to records. And he's already talked about his dad had to study and would listen to records. Mm -hmm. um, something that hit for me was when, um, I, I don't remember exactly when in time it was, but I think it was recently after his mother's attempt, and he doesn't really grasp what happened, and he says, well, you know, you drank a whole bottle of cough syrup and took all these antihistamines and like a whole bottle of these types of pills you're probably healthier than I am if you wanted to kill yourself you should have jumped off a bridge um, and then there's just the, like he takes a pause to like really let that line sink in and then he goes and then I just continued eating my breakfast and my mom just sat there in silence watching me and that just imagining that scene really just, I don't know what it was. It just re it really, you know, hit home for me, I guess. Yeah, and it, it's a great contrast to, like, how he dealt with a second attempt as a teenager versus mm -hmm. how he dealt with, this, with the first attempt as a seven-year-old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, part of that, um, when then he says that he had made the meal, that she'd come home and he'd made her a meal, and mm -hmm. part of what upsets him so much is that... I made, uh, I'd spent ages on this meal, and I was furious that she was sitting there wishing she was dead and letting it go cold. Mm. And that kind of real human thing, and again, the, yeah, the picture of it, of mm -hmm. they're there at the table, and he'd spent this time to try to welcome her back and put his labor into creating food for her, and she's not eating it. Mm -hmm. And instead talking about, you know, 
I could have been dead if this would have happened. And there's like a sense of you can't really tell if the mom was like, I could have been dead in a hopeful sense or just mm-hmm. matter of fact. And that's yeah. very frustrating as well. Um, two more moments for me, just because I, I, I love this place so much. I want to just share about it. Um, at one point, he lends a book to a girl in the library that's eventually going to become his girlfriend and wife. And when she returns it, um, she tells him to read it. And he's like, well, I gave you the book. Uh, why would I read it again? And when he finally opens it up, his list falls out from where he left it before he went to college. And it's like a moment of like, <gasps> like it's such a well-kept secret for him. And he talks about during his childhood, sometimes not having lunch uh, at school, sometimes not wearing socks because he was taking care of himself a lot. Mm-hmm. And that frustration of, I don't want people to think that my mom was a bad mom with the context of I had to take care of myself a lot is a a very emotional thing for me. Um, and then the second one, after he tries to high-five a bunch of people, which is hilarious, yeah. and he takes, like, a breath, and he, like, quits, and he's like, oh, oh, that was a big mistake. So funny. And then one beat later... My mom used to do this, and I'm like, no, just let me be happy. <laughs> that was, um, that's not when I realized, but that was a big marker for me for how tight the storytelling was. Because when he starts high-fiving, I was like, what is this guy doing? This is so, you know, over the top. And then immediately he goes, you know, sometimes my mom went, like, too far. And I was like, oh, you got me. <laughs> Yeah, and, and at that point, you sort of recognize that that the, the mother's mental illness was more of a, of a manifestation of bipolar, um, and he is afraid of being happy. He gets into this idea of, like, these the normal things that kids are afraid of wasn't what I was afraid of. I was afraid of being happy, because happiness reminds me of what always comes after with my mother— which was deep depression. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> but to be clear, audience members, it is funny as well. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> um, so I think that's a good spot to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about mental health and stigma. If you feel that you are suffering from mental illness, here are some resources that you can look out for. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, is a great source to find support groups and information about certain mental illnesses. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services, or SAMHSA, is a national helpline and treatment referral and information service. There is also the National Institute for Mental Health Resources for What to Do If and has a list of frequently asked questions. And if you're a student on a college campus, you should try to find your university's counseling center. Help is out there. Boy, 
oh boy, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to go out and purchase those goods or services. Yum, yum. So, Alex, you uh, brought up how uh, James was our director in college, um, but we've never really talked about our theater background, and since this is our first play that we're reviewing, thought that might be a good way to get into it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, I can tell you that in high school, I was fascinated by theater and never touched it. I was too nervous. Um... Also, my family was very big in sports, and so if I didn't do a sport, I wouldn't get attention from my father. Um, but aside from all of that stuff going on, once I was in college, I made like a, a nice transition into theater because I still did sports. Um, I, I dipped my toes into theater with the clubs and very short productions. One of the things that I had an issue with at the high school is that if you're going to commit, you're committing for an entire season of it. Um, whereas in college, I got to dip my toes with 10-minute plays and staged readings, and that's when I was able to determine, fine, I'm willing to commit the rest of my life to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I did a couple of productions with James. Um, I moved on to want to direct, not realizing how much I wouldn't enjoy the experience the day of as directing. I do still enjoy directing, but that day of, man, I don't know if it's worth it at that point. Just don't show up. <laughs> if, if I had somewhere to go where I could just pace, that would be better. <laughs> but I have to do the lights at the show. <laughs> and then, aside from all of that theater stuff and being in plays and memorizing lines, I was also introduced to improv by James himself. And now I do improv at Serious Comedy Theater in Beacon, New York. Mm-hmm. There you have it, folks. All right. So moving on from... <laughs> um, I, my first play I was in was in seventh grade. It was Guys and Dolls. Uh, I overheard my friend tell a teacher because she knew he did the musicals. And she was like, what's the musical this year? And he said, Guys and Dolls. And uh, that had been parodied on The Simpsons. So I was like, that show's about mobsters. That seems interesting. <laughs> so then I uh, signed up and did it. And then once I got to high school, uh, I did, um, we did a drama in the fall and then a musical in the spring. And so I did all of those except for one where I was on stage crew. And then once I got to college, I immediately sought out the improv club and um, I got to do what I would later become my favorite type of theater to perform, uh, Commedia dell'arte with... James and MSMC Theater, which is basically where you, over the rehearsal process, you improvise the script and, like, figure out what works and what you're going to make up the night of. Um, And it was a lot of fun. And uh, now I also do improv with serious comedy theater. (laughs) I, in fact, do not do improv with serious comedy theater, but... You could. (laughs) My two earliest memories of doing theater, at some point in elementary school, I was in a Noah's Ark pageant at my church. I don't remember exactly what I did, but I remember that that experience happened. And in seventh grade, I played Little Jake in the high school version of Annie Get Your Gun. Mm-hmm. which I'm sure if there were video of, I would be quite ashamed of. But <laughs> at the time, I thought I was the next uh, you know, Laurence Olivier or Ian <laughs> McKellen or whatever. 
Uh, but then went to college for theater, uh, went to grad school for theater, uh, worked professionally. I've done uh, tech stuff, acting stuff, directing stuff. It's a career where you kind of do what you get paid to do. Nice. That actually reminded me. I guess my first step into the, the, the spotlight, I was the donkey in the uh, Christmas pageant one year. So uh, I'm really the reason Joseph and Mary were able to give birth to the Messiah is how I saw it. So. All right. If we're all going to do this, <laughs> I was also in a production of uh, Stations of the Cross. Um not even at my church, at my neighboring church. You were um, you were a ringer. I was that good that they had to like pull me from from my current <laughs> church, uh, and it's like a very intense Stations of the Cross because I've been to a lot of them, and a lot of them is just walk with a cross, stop, people read. Walk with cross, stop, people read. I had lines. I was almost nude inside of a church. I was whipped. I was, like, actually crucified. I have holes in my hands. Um, Maybe not that extreme. But there were certain parts of the script where I I had to scream in pain because they they whip the um, cross that's standing and I collapse. And you hear gasps like, did he really just get whipped? (laughs) That's part of the movie magic. (laughs) That's just showbiz. So what part did you play? <laughs> I was the whip. Ah, oh, nice. Nice. Uh, um, I guess that was my introduction to theater. Yeah. And look at me now, Maggie Grady. You've created a star. <laughs> There's a fun fact about me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, getting back into the play itself and and a big topic that gets covered, um, the main character has an argument over and over again with Sam, his wife, about seeking out someone to talk to. And he gets very frustrated. He sort of expresses, like, I know what depression is and I know how to handle it. I just, you know, isolate myself. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which to him is reasonable, but to someone who's trying to be his partner, it's difficult to deal with, difficult to live with. Um, And so after she leaves him and he has to hear it from someone else and finally finds a group to talk to, it really brings into light, like, this stigma of seeking out help. So, Mm -hmm. uh... In today's episode, I really want to get into how to destigmatize mental health and just like general conversations about it. I think um, you know he has to come to terms with I need help, and I think that's the biggest. Not necessarily being afraid to like seek it out and talk about it, but just understanding because you know he's like I isolate myself. That's what works, and it took a partner to say, no, that actually isn't working. Uh, You just thought it was. You know, I would argue that at that point, he doesn't even see it as depression, that that he defines depression around what his mother does. And he hasn't figured out yet that his father was struggling with mental illness too. uh, Because he sees himself as mimicking his father's behavior and his father wasn't trying to commit suicide, so his father was fine. His mother was the one that was sick. And he doesn't act at all like his mother. 
And so to him, I'm fine. I don't need to see anybody because I'm not doing what my mother did. <laughs> and that's uh, difficult to experience in the context of if your mental health or your mental illness isn't to a quote-unquote extreme enough, people don't believe you or or you don't believe yourself or you don't really understand how to seek out help because some people might think like, well... I've never contemplated suicide and therefore I don't need help or I see other people have it worse and therefore I have nothing to be sad about. Therefore, I'm just going to be ashamed of the fact that I'm sad rather than talking about it because they think it's their emotions are manifestations of the actions around them rather than a chemical imbalance in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, I think... Mental health has been, I don't know how to phrase it, destigmatized for the worse in certain aspects. Um, and what I mean is, you'll hear someone say, like, oh, man, I have to go to the DMV today. I'm so depressed. And it's, yes, you can be depressed without, like, being diagnosed or something like that. But I think in certain contexts, no, you're just upset. Don't say that you're depressed. Being depressed is a very serious thing. Right, yeah, I think it's more so being um, conscious of the vocabulary that you're yeah. using. Um, I know that I still have friends who, in certain contexts, they're willing to make a joke of, gosh, I'm so upset, I'm going to kill myself. And I think knowing your audience is very important, mm-hmm. um, because that's nothing that I would ever say. But I also don't necessarily blame them for using that as a joke because they're using it like between me me and them it's not like quote unquote hurting anyone uh <laughs> but being comfortable with that vocabulary can be damaging because now you have to struggle to potentially censor yourself when you're not in the same audience and i think for me i don't curse as much in my world because i know that when i'm teaching i can't curse so rather than having to turn on a switch or turn off a switch, I do certain things outside of class that will benefit me in class. And I think that can be true with being conscientious about the vocabulary you use and the hyperbole that you use of, God, I'm so depressed, like, God, I wish I was dead, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe, the way you're talking about uh, how he how he deals with things we're of different generations. You know, I'm old and will die well before you. Thank you. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> uh, and he deals with his mental illness as um, probably my generation, certainly the generation before me, particularly men. Uh, this idea of suck it up, don't ask for help. And isolating yourself, this whole idea kind of that has become romanticized in America of the man cave where a guy can go and be by themselves. Well, that's potentially that same sort of isolation where you go and you withdraw. Uh, There's a moment in the play where I say uh, Sam said that I was becoming morose, that I was isolating myself, wallowing. And you can see that in a lot of particularly men. And so 
he has modeled his behavior on the way men deal with things and thinks it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the script, it says, um, it took me a long time to get to this point to talk to someone because I'm British. <laughs> and and when James performs it, he says, I'm Midwestern. And uh, when I was reading through the script and crossing things off because, like, it's so British, I need to, like, mm-hmm. t- change all the mums to moms, university to college, I crossed it off and wrote Latino. Okay. Um, and, like, just machismo. And, like, st- there are so many cultures where men need to man up, suck it up, and it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in some sense, I don't identify with the character at all. My mother hasn't ever attempted suicide. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of things with the narrator himself that ring really true to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am much more likely to isolate myself rather than to ask for help. Um, that stigma that comes partially from where I grew up in the Midwest and when I grew up, of don't ask for help. I've never been to a therapist or or a psych, and I will, to someone else, say, go see somebody, go talk to somebody. It's really helpful. I've seen it work. It would still be really hard for me to go in because I'm carrying all that baggage from when I'm a kid, and I don't know what my dad would have said. And that kind of worry of... As much as he loved me and cared for me and was a great guy, it would be hard for me to step into a therapist's office. And it would almost certainly take my wife kind of kicking me in the butt all the way there to make it happen. Yeah, it definitely took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I I couldn't deal with certain problems that I had until I spoke to someone about it. Um, And a big part of that was thinking that... Well, if I just confide in friends, that's th- that's what a therapist does. Problem mm-hmm. solved. Um, and as it turns out, wow, uh, therapists have an entire degree revolving around <laughs> how to ask the right questions, how to really get into what is bothering you and what's affecting you and what you can do about it, that it turns out friends can't do that. Um, and neither can family. And it's, it's difficult to sort of believe, especially with the stigma culturally and with the health insurance and with the cost of it, like, you can only get help at a certain point in your life with the right job and the right amount of money and the right people pushing you to go get it. It's And it really shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Um, someone had recently suggested it to me, and I was like, well, I don't really have time or money the two things you need to go to therapy so it it, it is kind of like a, I'll I'll just wait until you know all the stars align and then I can go and that's probably why it's uh, on the rise in America at least depression not seeing therapists I don't know. <laughs> oh I see uh, I think that in general that stigma uh, for mental taking mental health days or recognizing that you are going through something it really like diminishes people's self-esteems and it it robs people of social opportunities Mm -hmm. and i do think what the the whole play is about is a big part of it 
too. You know, uh, therapy is a, a useful resource and people should definitely seek it out, especially if you can go to it. But another part of it is changing your outlook. And obviously that's not going to fix the whole problem, but it can alleviate certain things. So, you know, he finds joy in seeking out these brilliant things and creating this list. And that's what helps him see the world in a more optimistic perspective. And so I think people have healthy coping mechanisms like that that they should turn to in conjunction with seeking help. Uh, So there's a moment I have... uh been in an English class, and the professor assigns a book. Uh, the book is The Sorrows of Young Werther that was written in the 19th century. And the book actually sparked some sort of um, suicide uh, copycats through Europe. And the book was criticized for this. And so here I am in college in uh, the 90s in terms of the play. And I'm assigned this book, and I'm kind of horrified that we're going to have to read a book that people who read it 100 years ago, some number of them went on to kill themselves. And so I go to the library, and I read up on social contagions. And one of the things that comes out in that section is that the number of suicides increased by 12% after Marilyn Monroe's death by overdose. That suicide is contagious. Um, And we see that, I think, in our modern culture as well. Uh, 13 Mm -hmm. Reasons Why is a lot of the criticism of that is what is that going to do to people who might already be in a vulnerable place mentally? Yeah, there's there's the sense of the media... Um, glorifying or romanticizing what occurred almost in the context of like when you want people to read your story you use like clickbaity words um, but when you're addressing such a harsh reality of death by suicide you don't want to use that same tactic because it's a much more vulnerable conversation that you're starting and headlines like posted on front pages and stuff sort of let the world know that when this type of thing happens it gets a lot of attention and for some people that might be what they're looking for like i'm going to suffer but at least my death can be worth something because i know for a fact that people react this way and so, like, there's a there's a list of, of like guidelines of how to portray this, and not many people abide by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, nothing new. A lot of articles come out. Um, they there were a lot when the first Thirteen Reasons Why season came out. They resurfaced when the second season came out. The third season just came out, so I'm sure we'll see them again. Um, but in every brilliant thing, uh, the narrator talks about this this list of how you're supposed to portray suicide and 13 reasons why famously uh, ignores pretty much every part of it <laughs> um, so just just a couple um, don't provide technical details never suggest that a method is quick easy painless or certain to result in death avoid sensationalist pictures or video avoid excess detail and avoid using the word commit don't describe deaths by suicide as successful. 
Um, so that's just a, a small portion of this list. Yeah, and I, and I can tell you for a fact, when we reviewed 13 Reasons Why, I used the word commit. And mm-hmm. like one of the responsibilities that we have as we continue to discover what affects other people is to develop our vocabulary and to educate ourselves. Um, and I think that growing as a person sometimes is stigmatized as well. Like, well, a couple of years ago, you you were willing to say this. So now I'm not supposed to say it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I, I've learned since then. So let's and that's and I'm one of my other responsibilities is to continue educating myself and others. So it's not that I like some people see it as like, oh, you think you're better than me. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, I just I learned something and I want other people to know it too. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, a, I guess, a webcomic, and it's one person says, you've changed, and then the other person says, I certainly hope so. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do think there are certain things that we can do to sort of destigmatize um, addressing your mental health. One of the things that we have control over is being conscious of our language. We talked about that, educating ourselves. Um, Being comfortable to talk openly is really important as well. I'm sure for some people it's difficult to admit that they go to therapy or that they feel like they need to go to therapy. And it could be very beneficial to them to hear in casual conversation like oh i spoke about this with my therapist like i'm so glad i'm applying it right now Mm -hmm. and just like it not be a big deal yeah you know in in that sense uh it would never be embarrassing or humiliating to say i'm doing my physical therapy Mm -hmm. Um, why are you walking with a crutch because the doctor told me to but when you get to mental health things for some of us, that desire to keep it secret, that desire to hide it so that people don't know. Uh, and some of that's really real. You know, they're, they're, that stigma is not entirely self-generated. It really is out there. And uh, depending on where you're working, depending on your family members, it can be a real problem to say, I'm in some sort of therapy. Um, you know, particularly at work, is that a job, you know, our jobs, Alex, teaching, uh, there comes a point where, okay, I'm in therapy, well, I'm not sure you should be in the classroom anymore. So you keep that to yourself because we both like to pay our bills and eat. I love paying my bills. (laughs) My favorite thing. (laughs) Hate eating. (laughs) Eating's fine. (laughs) Uh, But I, I definitely agree and, um, connect with that idea of we could get to a point where we treat physical ailments and mental ailments the same and there isn't a stigma to either of them but we have to push for that so guys um just to wrap up i think it'd be nice if we went around and added a brilliant thing to the list James, uh, there are guidelines to what can go on the the list. Um, would you mind explaining it to our audience? Yeah, he gives three things. Uh, a, no repetition. B, everything has to be genuinely wonderful and life-affirming. C, 
not too many material objects. So I think at most between the three of us, one material object. Okay. Stickers. <laughs> ah. Good job. <laughs> yes. Nice. <laughs> um, I actually have two. Ah. Uh, one of them is a reference to the play, so I'll start with that one, and then when we go around, I'll give like my real, real one. All right. Um, in the play, they mention peeing in the ocean, and nobody knows. <laughs> I like to pee in the ocean and then tell people, and then they like <laughs> swim away from me, and I'm like, "What do you think the ocean is, man?" <laughs> <laughs> this is all just waist high pee. <laughs> Um, so mine is, uh, kind of from childhood, I guess. Um, you know, since the the list starts when he's seven, a lot of his are things that a child would feel is brilliant and life-affirming. Um, but I think that's, you know, still important. Um, so mine is getting a new video game and then reading the manual. Um, a lot of... You enjoyed reading the manual? I enjoyed reading the manual. Um, unfortunately, a lot of games nowadays don't have manuals. I was going to say, my God, how old are you, No, Joe? yeah. <laughs> but when, when I was a kid, and every now and then, I'd get to go to GameStop and get a new video game. When we were driving back to my house, I would open the box and just read the manual on the drive home. And uh, it's something I, I do miss. Uh, yeah, do. it's like that sense of anticipation that's mm-hmm. very exciting. Yeah, I was just the play the game and then <laughs> after six or seven failed attempts, then go find the manual and figure out how am I supposed to play this. And you read the bare minimum. That's right, yeah. right. Oh, you press start. Yeah. <laughs> I got it now. Um, so I also have two. Uh, my first one is the way my dog greets me after I go to check the mail. I don't know if my dog just doesn't have a sense of time. <laughs> Uh, or if he's really terrified that every time I leave the door that I'm never coming back, but I get the exact same greeting if I'm going all day versus if I go, I'm going to go check the mail and the time it takes me to walk to the end of the driveway and come back. You tell your dog say that? Yeah, yeah. Of course I tell my dog I'm going to check the mail. Because he's looking at me like, where are you going? So I'm going to go check the mail. And then when I come back, it's like, oh my God, you came back. It's been forever. Uh, So pretty much everything that dogs do Mm -hmm. could be brilliant. Uh, and then my second one is collaboration. Mm-hmm. I really like theater because it's a collaborative art form. And because even in a one-man show, uh, if we started looking at the people that have helped us at the venue as well, uh, and the people selling tickets for us, there's got to be a dozen or more people involved in what is ostensibly a one-man show. I'm not a fan of collaboration when it comes to like school projects. When, it, when it's like a mandatory thing, collaboration, no good. But when everyone is there because they want to be there, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Um, after you mentioned your dog, I'm, I'm going to have two more. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> when, when I come home from work and I get to my kitchen, I hear the thud, thud, thuds of both of my cats coming from my room down the stairs to greet me. And I'm like, aww. And sometimes they don't. <laughs> and I didn't notice how much I liked it until they didn't. And I'm like, why aren't they excited to, to come down and say hi to me? You just had a preview of parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> that day when your child no longer likes you. 
they come back around, right? <laughs> Just for your money. Uh, oh, that's that, fine. That makes that's sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then my my original second thing was reminiscing on inside jokes. I have memories of high school and middle school inside jokes, and when I talk to those people that I still be, am friends with, I can mention them, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I remember. And we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll riff for, like, five minutes of past inside jokes back and forth and not even talk about anything new for a really long time. <laughs> the two of you and Thom Fallon... <laughs> You used to speak in a foreign language in rehearsals. <laughs> you could go for an entire 15-minute break in inside jokes that nobody knew anything about. Yeah, Alex, do you uh, mention an inside joke we had called Final Destination the other day? And it really brightened my day. I was like, I remember doing that. Oh, Final Destination. Yeah. What, a, what a time that yeah. was. There was one time where we played Final Destination, which is someone declares Final Destination and gives you an object, and you have to figure out how you accidentally die from that object, similar to the movie. Um, and someone gave me all of the plates at the view um, in our college, and I walked all the plates back to like the conveyor belt, and on my way back, I tripped and slammed my hand on the table and fell to to die and there was a table of professors who stood up to be like uh is something wrong and i hear whispers of alex get up this is a good time (laughs) oh i feel fine (laughs) that's why eventually we the back of the improv hoodies say i'm doing a bit (laughs) (laughs) we eventually learned we needed a catchphrase to to catch all all the weird stuff we did (laughs) good night (laughs) that'll do it for this episode thank you all so much for listening please tune in next time when we talk about inside out and continue the discussion about mental health if you liked us you can find us on twitter and instagram at two underscore bald men and find us on facebook and don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on apple podcast and soundcloud thank you all so much again and if you were driving we hope you got to your destination safely and on time